Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. It's surprising how much a person can endure when their spirit is strong. So a man who's getting married, on his wedding day, if he walks outside and there's a new scratch on the side of his car, he does mind. But maybe not so much. The joy of the day, the anticipation of what the day means, has an effect on how he thinks about that difficult circumstance of the new scratch on his car. So he still minds it, but because he's motivated within, he doesn't mind it as much. Now take that man 10 years later, let's say he's in a slump, a season of his life where he's deeply discouraged because of the heaviness of trials where he painfully pulls himself out of bed each morning and he finds a new scratch on the side of his car. It's a much heavier trial. Now, it's the exact same situation. There is a scratch either way. The difference is entirely internal to this individual. If the spirit is strong, it can bear up under so much hardship. If the spirit is breaking or broken, it can hardly bear with anything. The body can endure a lot when the spirit is strong. If the spirit is weak, the body can endure almost nothing. You could think on a smaller scale what happens in football games. Football is so much a game of momentum. Of course, by the time you get to the fourth quarter of any football game, people are in pain and exhausted. There's no way around that. But when the momentum's behind the team, though they're in pain and exhausted, it's like their spirits overcome their physical limitations and they drive and they win. But if you take the spirit out of the players... Although they're strong and conditioned, the game's already lost. On a bigger scale, the Christian martyrs of the past, their pictures frame the hall of faith behind us. This was their secret. Not necessarily strong bodies. Their secret was a strong spirit that could hold up when the body was suffering. This is actually the secret of almost all Christian strength. Because we saints, we suffer the same way everybody else does, and in some ways more than others do. Our circumstances are not easier. Sometimes they are harder. But our spirits are not broken. Sometimes they feel broken, but they're not broken. That's the secret of the Christian strength. Psalm 37 says of the saint, Though he fall... He shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. We will stumble into trials like everyone else. It says, though he fall. But the difference is when you face those trials, when externally you feel faint, you will not be cast headlong. You'll stumble like this. You will not be cast headlong because the Lord upholds your hand. That means he keeps your spirit from giving up from being broken, from snapping. Sometimes it feels like your spirit is bending to the point of snapping, but it does not snap, not for a saint. It holds. God gives us strength in the inner person, 
And that is the way that we endure the difficulties of this life, that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul stated that as an encouragement. When the Spirit is strong, there is nearly nothing that cannot be endured. And that's the secret of the Christian life. But when the Spirit breaks, there's almost nothing that can be endured. The text that we find today in 1 Samuel chapter 4, like I said, it is an ongoing judgment of Eli's house. And we find a woman whose body breaks and whose spirit breaks. We are descending into what is really an absolute kind of sorrow. Israel has just lost a battle against the Philistines. 30,000 of its foot soldiers have died. The rest have fled. Eli, who is both the priest at Shiloh and also the judge who oversees the nation, his two sons have gone away with the Ark of the Covenant. His sons have been killed by the Philistines. The Ark has been stolen. It is being taken into the land of Philistia onto unholy ground. And Eli, when he hears the news at Shiloh we saw last week, he falls from his chair and breaks his neck and dies. Today, we encounter Eli's daughter-in-law. Like I said, we find here a kind of absolute sorrow. So let's see this, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 19 through 22. Now his daughter-in-law, that's Eli's, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured... And that her father-in-law, Eli, and her husband, Phinehas, were dead. She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Don't be afraid, for you've borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The man of God who came and predicted judgment on Eli's house back in chapter 3, he said that the judgment God was bringing was so severe that the ears of everyone who heard it would tingle. In other words, there would be a physical reaction. And we've actually seen now that this man's prediction has been fulfilled twice. Eli had a very physical reaction to the news of what had happened when they were defeated by the Philistines, and especially that the ark was stolen, his reaction was physically to fall out of his chair and break his neck. Today, we see another very physical reaction to the news that is so severe. It's not tingling ears, but Phineas's wife, who's about ready, she's about full term, about ready to give birth, because of the shock of the news, she goes into labor. Like I said, there is not a silver lining in this storm. There is not a light 
in this darkness. There's not relief from this pain. This is a kind of absolute sorrow where earthly tragedy comes together with spiritual tragedy. And this poor woman is really left with nothing, nowhere to turn to, no consolation, not even the birth of her son, as we'll see. So what I want to look at today, being faithful to the text that we have before us, is the absolute sorrow that this woman experiences. But I do want to, at the end, turn and consider, since we are Christians, I want to encourage you with the fact that you will never experience, if you are in Christ, absolute sorrow like this woman. But you will experience what I instead will call a softened sorrow. So we want to consider absolute sorrow as we find it here in Phineas' wife and then a softened sorrow in yourself. So let's begin with this absolute sorrow. We're descending to a very dark place. There's no need to bring a flashlight. The darkness can be felt. It is so thick that it would drown out any light you bring to it. Before we look at the spiritual tragedy of this text, we begin just with the earthly tragedy that this poor woman is facing. Verse 19 is turning our attention from Eli, and you saw that he just died in verse 18. It's turning our attention from him to his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, right here. You see verse 18, verse 19 here. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. There's the transition. As a reminder, Phineas here, Hophni and Phineas, Eli's two sons, are always listed together and in that order. It's Hophni and Phineas. Therefore, it's very likely that Phineas was the younger son. Phineas, he's dead now. He died in the battle this day. However, his wife is about to give birth to a son. Now, we know, as we'll see later in 1 Samuel, that this son to be born, Ichabod, is not their firstborn son. They actually have another son already. We'll see this in chapter 14 when it speaks of, quote, a high tube, Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli. So it's not her firstborn son, but still, at this time, for a woman to give birth, especially to give birth to a son, was one of the apexes of a woman's existence at that time. Culturally, it was considered a great honor to be giving birth to a son, securing security, getting security for the future as well. Now, it's very likely that even before we come to the tragedy in our text, that this woman did not have an easy life. We know nothing of her character. We don't know if she was good or bad. We know very little, just what she says here. She has a spiritual mindedness about her. We know that at least. She speaks of the glory leaving. What we do know is more about her husband, Phineas. That Phineas was called a worthless man. It's not easy to be married to a worthless man, a son of Belial. But that was true of this woman. That was her life before this tragedy. We know that her husband cheated on her. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 22. It said that Hophni and Phinehas lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. We know that they did not know the Lord. We know the cruelty that Phinehas employed in sending a kind of thug to steal meat from worshippers. He did not fear God. He did not listen to correction. Being married to that sort of a person, which in this life it is the lot of some women, to be married to a son of Belial, a worthless person, that was her lot. Even if she was wicked herself, it is not an easy life. 
It is not like Phineas was very selfish and evil and wicked and violent and godless when he was operating in his function as a priest and then came home and was a very nice man. Certainly it was not that way. Marriages can never really be better than the character of the spouses in them. So this woman is already living out a kind of tragedy. But then it leads to this tragedy here in our text. And it may be, we don't want to read too much into this, but it is interesting the order that's given multiple times in this text, both in verse 19 and in verse 22. Of course, she's most shocked by the ark being taken, but then it also mentions the death of her father-in-law and of her husband. And you would think her husband would be mentioned first, but it's the death of her father-in-law, Eli, who at least was a half-good man. And then after that, it's the death of her husband, who was not even half-good. But here she is in Shiloh. No doubt on this day, she's very eager to hear the news, just like Eli had positioned himself west of the city by the gate, eager to hear what had become of the ark and the future of the nation as well. Of course, his own children are involved, Hophni and Phinehas. And here you have this woman. She is most likely in Shiloh. That's where she lives. And she's waiting for the news also. Suddenly, there is an outcry in the city around her. Eli heard it. The messenger has come with the news of the tragedy that's befallen the nation. But it seems that this woman didn't receive the news until after Eli already had because added to the news of the death of her husband and the stealing of the ark was also the death of her father-in-law. So that had already happened. So that message comes to her compounded, verse 19. And when she heard the news, and here it is, that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. It was a very vulnerable experience to be a woman in this day. She couldn't just go out and get a job and support herself. She really depended upon the male figures in her life. Of course, first, that always meant a husband, if you had one. But even if you lost a husband, you'd have a parental male figure in your life. But she's actually lost two male figures in her life. Not only her husband, her main source of support, but her father-in-law there, who's heading things up in Shiloh, who would have been a natural second tier of support for her, he is also dead. On top of that, if she had survived this, she would have to run away. Because the Philistines will come and destroy the city, most likely soon after this. She's in a very vulnerable position. On this very day, already three members of her family have died. Her brother-in-law, Hophni, her husband, Phineas, her father-in-law, Eli. They've died, and that won't be the end of death in her household this day, because as we'll see, she also will die. Verse 20 starts, and about the time of her death. Her death in childbirth, sadly at that time, was rather common. She dies here in a way that's similar to Rachel, who was a parent of the early tribes of Israel, married to Jacob. In Genesis chapter 35, we read this of Rachel. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear. For you have another son, Joseph and now Benjamin. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Nonai, which means son of my sorrow, but his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died. 
Now, Rachel's birth, we're told, was very hard. This may well have been a breech birth. The baby maybe wasn't positioned correctly. Of course, you can't do a C-section in that day. She may well have bled out, died of blood loss eventually. The wife of Phineas here, it's a little bit of a different experience because the shock seems that it plays some factor in what happens to her. Of course, the shock of the news is what sent her into labor, and it seems that the shock that sent her into labor also sent her out of the world, that that maybe was involved in her death afterward. We're not told it was a long or hard labor. It may have been. We don't know. You may have heard of people dying of a broken heart, but there is actually a medical condition that describes that experience called stress cardiomyopathy. You'll have to ask a doctor what that means exactly, other than to say that the stress that's already upon a woman's heart when she is giving birth, to add to that the shock that sent this woman into labor, that may have put too much on her heart and that may have been what killed her. That's a guess. I don't know. Maybe something else. What we know is that in this moment in our text, she is dying. She is dying in childbirth. The child survives, but she does not survive. Of course, if she had survived, it wouldn't have been a good situation to survive into. But she does not survive. She dies. Now, the sad thing is what I've just described to you in this woman's life is not the worst of it. It's the less bad of the hard things she's facing this day. It's the earthly tragedy that she's experiencing. Death of her family, death of herself. There is actually a sorrow that is greater and it is the spiritual tragedy. It's where she puts her focus in our text, you'll notice. Notice again the order of verse 19. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband was dead. Notice the ark is named first. It's the same thing we saw with Eli. He didn't fall out of his seat and break his neck until he heard specifically that the ark was stolen. That was the news that made his ears tingle. That was the shock that he couldn't take and he died. That's the shock that she can't take as she dies. That the ark is stolen. Verse 21, she named the child Ichabod. It could mean a few different things, but they all get to the same gist of an idea, which is most likely it means, where is the glory? Ikavod, where is the glory? Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because, and note again the order here, the ark of God had been captured, that's first, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And just in case we're not clear on her priorities, she says it herself, verse 22, and she said the glory has departed from Israel. Well, what's she thinking of when she says that? For the ark of God has been captured. She doesn't even mention the death of her husband or her father-in-law. Her focus, like Eli's, is entirely on the taking of the ark. To her, best we can tell with the limited data here, that was the worst thing that happened that day. Because now we've moved from earthly tragedy into spiritual tragedy. Now to grasp this, you have to remember that the ark of God It itself was a box, rather large, made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, as was commanded to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was filled with the Ten Commandments, God's covenant with his people. It was a reminder. That's why it's the Ark of the Covenant. It was a reminder of God's covenant relationship with his people, and the Ark itself represented God's presence. The way that it did that was it had a big golden lid on top of it with two cherubim, mighty angels with their wings, golden, stretching toward each other. 
The idea was that that was a kind of footstool, that God's throne was above this box, that God dwelt there in a unique way. God told Moses, quote, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. What that looked like we find in number seven. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. And finally, according to Leviticus 16, God would, quote, appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God is everywhere, but he wanted his people in the Old Testament to think of him dwelling uniquely above this box. That's where he dwelt uniquely. That represented, that meant for God's people, his presence among them. And you know that Israel was a nation, unlike any other, defined in more than anything else by its relationship to Yahweh. He is the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He's the one who gave them an identity and laws and a covenant. He's the one who led them to take the land. He was the one with the promises. So for the ark to now be in enemy territory far beyond their hope of recovering it, what does that mean? That's why she says, Ichabod. Where is the glory? The glory has departed. And that word departed here, really in the Hebrew, has more the idea it's gone into exile. The glory has gone into exile, meaning God, who dwells uniquely here with us, his presence, not him, he can't be captured, we'll see that in the next chapters, but his presence has, in a sense, left us and has gone into enemy territory. and We don't have a hope of getting it back. That is a spiritual tragedy that leaves this woman with literally no hope. She has nowhere to turn to. This is maybe the most shocking event that took place among God's people in its history up until the Babylonian exile, which takes place later in 586 B.C., in Ezekiel chapter 10, you may remember that the prophet before the Babylonian exile has a vision where he sees God's glory leaving the temple, where the ark is housed, leaving the temple. And shortly afterward, in comes Babylon, destroys, ruins the temple, destroys it. The ark of the covenant, maybe taken away by Babylon at that time, is never seen again. That is a massive time of upheaval for God's people because right there in the temple is where God dwells and it's destroyed and the ark is gone. Up until that point, years later, this is about the worst that Israel ever experiences because of the spiritual tragedy. It's not so much about the 30,000 who died. They'd have other military losses. But it's the idea that the ark is gone. God's presence has departed. It's gone into exile somewhere else. What hope is there for Israel? And what hope is there for this poor woman? She doesn't see any hope. What kills Phineas' wife is news of this kind of preview of the Babylonian captivity, the ark in exile. It's too much for her to survive. Her grief is really beyond what we can express here. And if you've never been in her position, to that level of grief, it's hard to understand it. It's hard to, if you have, it's, you know it's hard to express to someone else. But that's where she is with absolutely no hope. That's why 
these women who are helping her give birth, standing nearby, they try to encourage her with the typical, usual way you would encourage someone in that circumstance, which often would work. It's there in verse 20. At about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, don't be afraid. Here's why. You've born a son. Now, they're acting according to the usual way of things. Typically, childbirth is agonizing, but it is alleviated somewhat afterward by the fact that you have brought a child into the world. Even Jesus acknowledges that that's the typical way things go. Jesus would later say, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. But there are exceptions. This is an exception. She gives birth. They try to encourage her. And she here did not answer or pay attention. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know if you've ever been close to there. But this kind of absolute sorrow is when your whole life is falling apart. There appears to be no hope for your future on earth. And then you turn to the sky for relief from God and you find, like Job, that the sky is made of bronze. You have no hope on earth. You see no hope in heaven. Where else will you go? Where is there except heaven and earth? That's the universe. There's nothing. That is the kind of absolute sorrow that she's experiencing here. Now, I've left some time here in our message because, like I said, it would be terrible to end the message right there, wouldn't it? Because we as believers, we know grief, we know sorrow, we know earthly tragedy. Many earthly tragedies are represented in this room. But if you are truly in Christ, none of you are in the same position as Phineas' wife. Because we are not experiencing, we shall never experience the spiritual tragedy that this woman faced. So our sorrow is not an absolute sorrow. It's what I'll call a softened sorrow. That's Christian sorrow. Um, it's still hard, but it's softened. It's softened. Paul told Christians that he didn't want any of them to grieve as others do who have no hope. He didn't say he doesn't want you to grieve because you will when there's earthly tragedy. But you don't grieve like Phineas' wife. You don't grieve like those who look up and there's nothing. You do not, you never shall have an absolute sorrow. You'll have an approximation of that experience at times. A kind of dark night of the soul is common among God's people. It may feel that way, but it will never be that way in your life. Think about earthly tragedies in your life for a moment. You know that you're not immune to them. You know that you experience them. If you're a believer... You experience earthly tragedies. It would be difficult to compare with unbelievers, but at least at the same frequency and possibly at a greater frequency. For to be faithful is to subject yourself to two things. One is the wrath of Satan, who is active in the world and those under him. So you'll have hardship from that. The other is, of course, persecution. The world cannot receive you. So you'll uniquely experience hardships, earthly tragedies, because of that. We've experienced some relief from that, but in most parts of the world, and to a degree here. 
There will be national tragedies in your life, just like in the wife of this poor woman, the life of this poor woman, where she just saw her nation defeated by the enemies who are now going to come through the land and kill and pillage. There will be national tragedies in your life, wars and rumors of wars. We experience those as believers coming to the very origin of life, to childbirth, which should be a happy moment, and coming there and instead of life, finding death. Christians experience that as well. God is going to heal some of your illnesses now in this life. And he's not going to heal all of them. He's going to alleviate some of your troubles now and others he's going to leave for the rest of your life. If you're faithful, you'll experience many trials, many earthly tragedies. You will not always be delivered from them. So how do you differ from this poor woman in our text? She had earthly tragedies. You will have earthly tragedies. She had the spiritual tragedy of God's presence departing. And that's the difference. If you're in Christ, God's presence will never leave you. Remember Jesus Christ crucified on Calvary. The sky was dark that day, dark as tragedy itself. It was the worst earthly and spiritual tragedy that has ever taken place. Ichabod means, where is the glory? It's gone. Meaning, where's God's presence? He's left us. It sounds very much like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of Jesus on the cross in darkness is very much like the cry of this woman. It's an earthly tragedy. And when Jesus looks up, by his own agreement, he is now in a position where there is a kind of forsakenness before God. It's a mystery to us how this can function, but it's real and it's there. And he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is the glory? Where is the presence of God? That which had been his succor and his comfort through all the trials of his life and on the cross, earthly tragedy, torment, friends abandoning him and now hanging there in shame, naked, and he looks up and the sky is bronze. So Jesus knows what this woman was going through in a way we don't. But the reason Jesus went through that absolute sorrow was so that now you never, ever will. You never will have that experience. That's the meaning of the cross. It's Jesus being forsaken of the Father because of your sins upon him. He takes the penalty which includes this forsakenness by God. But if he's taken the penalty of your sins, then you do not suffer that penalty. You still suffer earthly tragedies. That's just a part of fallenness. But the specific penalty for your sin is a spiritual death, which is at the end of the day, it is a separation from God. It is a forsakenness by God. It is a bronze sky. And you will never have that. Never will you have that. On the cross, God looks down at Jesus and says, I forsake you. But when God looks down at your life, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. There will still be suffering. There will still be tragedies and there will still be sorrows, but they will all be softened because no matter how intense and how difficult it gets here and it gets intense, when you look up at the sky, 
God looks back and smiles. You have the presence of God. You have the approval of God. You have the assurance that God is with you in your trial, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Behold, He's with you as your shepherd. That softens your sorrow. That can give you a joy that the world will marvel at. That puts a smile on the martyr's face. That puzzles the pagan observers and leads them to trust in Christ in pursuit of that same joy. Because they still have sorrows. The Christians are still thrown to the lions. But there's something softening their sorrows. And it is the presence of God. When we ask the question, where is the glory? Which we do ask sometimes in this life as Christians. Where is the presence of God? But the answer is given in Jesus' famous last words. Look, I'm with you. Always. To the end of the age. Where's the glory? Right there. With you. Even within you. You are the temple. There's not a tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle. He dwells within you by his spirit. You are the temple. He does not leave you. He will not forsake you. Therefore, you will never have an absolute sorrow. That's why Paul can say of Christians, we are afflicted in every way. Yes, that's true. But not crushed. Afflicted, but soften it. We're not crushed. It's not absolute. Perplexed, soften it. We're not driven to despair. Persecuted, soften that. You are not forsaken. Struck down, soften that. You are not destroyed. When you look up from your tragedies on earth, there is joy in heaven. There is hope. That's what softens the difficulties now because God is present with you. You may have heard this of John G. Patton who was a missionary to the New Hebrides. The islands are now called Vanuatu. It's an island. He went there with his wife. She gave birth. She died. The newborn child died. He's there by himself trying to reach these cannibalistic natives. They don't take friendly to that, so they decide they're going to kill him, likely to eat him. He runs away at the advice of a friend, climbs up a chestnut tree, all by himself on this island. Climbs a chestnut tree, and here's what he says. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets. The natives had some guns. He heard that. And the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself. Have you a friend that will not fail you then? So when you suffer and cry, where is the glory? Christ replies, I'm with you always through this trial and to the end of the age.